Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 31, Stabbed in the Back. By the second day of the invasion of Poland, the country's people, especially the Varsovians, gave up any illusion of life being normal. Indeed, those civilians within Warsaw watched, stunned as their leaders, normally arrogant men, danced around in circles. Oh, their words were inspiring, but their actions were dizzying. But the one thing officials seemed to be doing effectively was packing up. Packing up and burning every piece of paper not going with them. But where, exactly, were they going? This was answered on September 6th, just before Marshal Smeeg Wittitz left Warsaw. He asked that all men of fighting age or condition to gather east of the capital. It was there the government would regroup and launch the counteroffensive that would push the Germans back to Berlin. Because by then, it was clear, Poland would be fighting alone. Staying true to the letter of their agreement, Great Britain and France declared war on Germany on September 3rd. As for the spirit of the agreement, well, France moved forward a few divisions into the Saar region, but then withdrew. They seemed as satisfied with the status quo as the Germans. Getting back to Poland, an attack from the west, or the east for that matter, had never been unimaginable. The Poles, just like every other country, carried out war games to sharpen their reaction to invasions from either direction. So, like the rehearsal, all Polish forces, some 39 divisions, about 900,000 men, began to mobilize and prepare to stop the Germans who were coming from the north, west, and south. Meanwhile, the Polish civilians that lived west of the capital were experiencing their own hell. They were, unknowingly, the subjects of a Nazi experiment. Considering the lofty goals of Hitlerism and the size of the Luftwaffe, the German high command needed to know, could an entire town be so terrorized from the air alone that its people fled instead of staying and resisting, thereby forcing German war material to commit itself to each and every settlement. The city of Velun, playing no part in the defense of Poland, had the honor of being the first town in the German laboratory. Approximately 70 tons of explosives were dropped there, destroying the vast majority of buildings, including the hospital, church, and synagogue. Later, as the new German administrator strutted into the city, unharmed and unchallenged, he found more corpses than civilians. The experiment was a success. The same procedure would be tried on another 157 towns. And as the Polish men were busy mobilizing, most of the victims of this grand experiment were women and children. But how could the German soldiers be so heartless? In part, the answer was Nazi ideology. The same German soldiers that bombed Polish cities or gathered up Polish civilians into churches before setting them afire had been told by their officers that, as Poland was not a real country, its army was not made up of real soldiers. Hence, any Poles with guns were trying to commit murder or were partisans. Either way, they deserved no mercy. 
Those soldiers' officers, in turn, heard these words from the leader himself. Quote, unquote, close your hearts to pity. As for Isaac Zuckerman, the Zionist organizer mentioned last time, his fortunes were equally dismal. Trying to do his part for the country, he was now in western Warsaw, helping to dig a large trench to prevent German tanks or trucks from entering Wola, a Catholic suburb of the capital that housed armament factories and steelworks. This area had to be kept out of German hands and kept running if the defenders had any chance of success. Of course, Zuckerman and members of the Zionist Youth League that he convinced to help him didn't know of the departure of the Polish government eastward yet. It was hard enough for him to get his young charges to work beside Gentiles or do anything for the government that had repressed them at every opportunity. Zuckerman had been digging for 48 hours straight, but by 4 a.m. on September 7th, his body simply gave out. When he headed to the Young Pioneers Clubhouse back in the Jewish district, he was shocked to find the place empty, more like abandoned. Hanging on the wall were the equally abandoned maps of Palestine. Just where was everyone? At that moment, the answer was probably on one of the three bridges over the Vistula that led out of the capital to the east. In fact, that morning of September 7th, some 300,000 people pushed each other across the bridges. If the government was leaving, so were they. But one of the ones not going was Simha Rothauser. At 15, he was too young to be called up for service, and his father, Z, would not allow it anyhow. So, as the masses of women, children, and men of all ages flowed out of the capital, Zimha walked around the Royal Gardens Park, listened to Warsaw 2, the backup radio station to Warsaw 1, that had already been dismantled on the marshal's orders, as it described the approach of the Germans who entered the western edge of the capital, four armored panzer divisions strong, a little after noon on September 8th. Their first priority was the airport, taken just a few hours after entering the capital. Now the occupation could speed up, as supplies could be flown directly in, rather than miles to the rear and driven up. But just as Hitler was counting on the beginning of the end of Warsaw's resistance, Nazi Germany's plan hit a snag, a major snag. When the leading panzers reached the Wola and Akchota line, the very trench Zuckerman helped create, the Varsovians stopped the tanks in their treads. It was 5 p.m. Try as they might, the panzers could not shift the defenders from behind their line. Despite, as one Polish combatant put it, quote, an uninterrupted wall of fire. A hurricane of bullets. The sound is deafening. They are massacring civilians, mowing down running refugees, indiscriminately clearing a straight path towards our barricade. Before our eyes, it seems as though every rule and custom of civilized warfare is being violated. Unquote. This was written as the attackers were 100 meters from the barricade. The forced stoppage was all the more frustrating for the Germans, as, by that day, September 8th, they controlled most of the air over Poland, certainly 
the skies over the capital. But this was not due to outfighting the Polish Air Force. The marshal had ordered his air arm to fall back east of the capital as well, which was a gift to the Germans from the god of war, Mars. Because during the first week of combat, 72 German aircraft were shot down over Warsaw, versus a loss of 38 Polish aircraft. In total, the Nazis had lost some 600 airplanes in that same period, and now that they controlled the skies, it was time for some payback. Hence the indiscriminate firing on refugees fleeing the city, or trapped within the capital. One of those now-fleeing civilians being shot at from the sky was Isaac Suckerman. He was, that same day, racing back east, trying to catch up with any of his organization. But the best he could do was locate and take control of some of those that belonged to the Berlin chapter of his young pioneers. They were grateful, as they only spoke Yiddish and German. Still, such was the confusion that one of their number got separated and was soon being questioned by a roving Polish patrol. As the young man could only respond in German, and the soldiers knew that the Germans had inserted spies before hostilities commenced, the petrified, stuttering child was shot outright. Zuckerman huddled his remaining charges even closer to him. Back in Warsaw, General Eric Hopner, the 16th Panzer Corps commander, was dreading his next message to be sent back west. His men and machines had, practically, advanced for the last week unopposed, had joyously entered the western edge of Warsaw, only to be stomied by a long line of earthworks and barricades, made up of anything and everything to hand. Furniture from homes was stacked up, abandoned buses and train cars were now used to block all roads heading further into Warsaw. The rail lines along the streets were separated and bent to stand up, thereby creating a ready-made tank trap. What Hopner didn't know was that, as the vast majority of government officials had fled per the marshal's orders, Warsaw Mayor Stephen Starzynski either didn't hear of the order, which was doubtful, or rather chose to ignore it and defend the city that he loved. Over the years, as Starlutsky rose through the ranks within Warsaw politics, he had not participated in the anti-Jewish behavior of many of his colleagues. So, now that he chose to stay behind and asked for all able-bodied volunteers to join him, some tens of thousands answered his call, Jews and Gentiles alike. All told, there were some 82,000 Polish citizens and soldiers defending the capital. They defiantly stood in Hopner's way. But the Panzer commander had no desire to be the one to tell Berlin that, after Hitler's string of victories, diplomatic and military, for the last six years, the attack on Warsaw was bogged down. So, on the next day, September 9th, Hopner tried to move east again, this time with 250 Panzers. But the Germans were about to experience what would happen to them two years hence when trying to take Russian cities. The Panzers, Mark I and Mark IIs, did not have the room they needed to fully deploy. Also, there could be, and normally was, booby traps ready to be sprung around each corner of a building. 
It didn't matter that the tank shells could penetrate through anything within the city. One had to know where to aim at. And the cosmopolitan jungle provided ample hiding places. The more rubble caused by German bombing, the harder it was for the tanks to progress. Whereas the defenders used their barricade and shattered buildings to stealthily move anti-tank artillery into place and fire on the tanks and motorized infantry from point-blank range. So, unless the attackers were going to level each and every building, they would have to make do. But make do was exactly what they didn't do. 250 Panzers went up against the barricade. 194 made it back, and the line still held. This result had to be reported back to Berlin. The next day, September 10th, Hitler knew he needed to make a change. France, with its 100 divisions, was still on his western border. So this conflict needed to be over. If the capital could be taken, the war could be wound up. If the war could be ended soon, before the French moved, perhaps, just perhaps, the Germans and the Allies could come to some sort of understanding. After all, Poland would be his, and a general war would be in no one's best interest. So, on September 10th, the Panzers moved back, and three divisions of heavy Junker bombers, several hundred airplanes, flew over the capital, 17 times, dropping their loads, hoping the sheer scale of destruction would break the will and take the fight out of the Polish hearts. As the bombs began to rain down, Simha Rothhauser's father, Z, moved the family to the Jewish quarter, as their home was near a military base and an area made up of housing for Polish officers. The Rothhauser family would mirror the movements of many others still in the capital. Bombs would drop here, so the civilians would move there. The bombs would then fall there, and the people would return to the previous spot, or pick a new location. The bombs were always following them. The intensive bombing and shelling continued for seven days. By then, September 17th, the Wehrmacht had reached and was pressing hard upon the trench Zuckerman helped dig. But that wasn't the real danger. The panzers were more or less holding back, only attacking when casualties could be inflicted. Meanwhile, thousands of bombs and thousands of artillery shells landed in some part of Warsaw. That day alone, September 17th, 5,000 shells hit the Jewish quarter. And the bombs that fell did their job. The dome of St. John's Cathedral was one of the first to fall in on itself. The Parliament building was not far behind. From it rose huge clouds of plaster dust. The Opera building burned, its steel doors melting by the heat. The Philharmonic building, with its impressive marble columns, was now nothing more than piles of rubble. Just days before this, Isaac Zuckerman had his own world fall down around him. Having reached Kavo, a town east of Warsaw, Zuckerman looked around to join the great counterattack, but he, nor any of the others hoping to do the same, saw any soldiers, or weapons, or military tents, or any government officials. There would be no great counterassault, 
As one of the young, martially-minded men said, it was obvious that Poland was kaput. But the savaged country still had life within it. The towns and cities east of the capital had to deal with the flood of refugees. The people, from wherever they came, had to decide their next move. Because, obviously, the government wasn't leading anyone anywhere. Equally, the Jews in Kabul gathered to decide their future. But there were two separate gatherings. One of Bundists who wanted to support the regime however they could, and the other of Zionists who saw this invasion as yet another reason they needed their own homeland in Palestine. Zuckerman, who was filled with pride and hope, as the Jews and Gentiles worked hard side by side to dig that trench, was now downcast as the two groups did not interact, even think about working together, or at the very least, seem concerned with what their brethren were going to do. Then, the Bundists had their own low point, when, after offering to help whatever leaders they could find with Poland's defense, were flatly turned down. But soon after, word got to Koval that Mayor Starzynski was resisting the invaders. So, some of their group were sent back west to help. As for the ones that stayed put, no one knew what to do. But Zuckerman knew what he was going to do. He would ride north, having found a horse without a master, and see if there was still a viable escape route through Lithuania. Others had already been sent south, to do the same via Romania, which is where the Polish government was heading. As the remaining Bundists tried to come up with a coherent plan, the question of what they should do with themselves was answered for them. At dawn on September 17th, planes could be seen flying over Kovel. The people, now used to this, dashed for cover. But as they looked up from their hiding places, they noticed the planes were green, not the normal German gray, and instead of black crosses, there were red stars. Before long, the refugees in Kovel and throughout eastern Poland would learn Stalin's USSR was also invading Poland. Hello, members. Ray here. Um, if you hear bagpipes in the background, it, um, someone across the road from me is having a wedding reception, so it's not cool background music that I'm doing. Uh, anyway, um, I just wanted to let you know real quick, I have a, a recording for you for when um, Britain declared war on uh, Germany on September 3rd. But real quick, I just want to let you know that um, as I was recording this, James B. from Sacramento, California, wrote back to me, excited that he had been chosen at the completely random selection of uh, receiving a coffee mug. He decided he wanted the Churchill instead of the FDR. That's fine. Um, I think they both look great. So, J uh, James, that's coming out to you. I'll put it in the mail tomorrow. And so my winner for this episode's totally random selection of a coffee mug is... Donna S. from Broccoli in London. I hope I'm saying Broccoli right. I, I'm not sure. Um, so, Donna, I will be emailing you, and then you'll let me know which one you want. Hopefully you want one of them. And I will ship that out to you. So, again, thank you, everyone, for listening and for supporting the show. I really do appreciate it. Um, several of you have written in and wanted to know when I will be able to do this full time. Uh, to be honest, I'm still, like, 
probably like 100 members away from being able to do that. So I'm doing the best I can. So we'll see how it goes. But uh, again, just thanks for all the support. I really do appreciate it. And I'll see you soon with the next episode of The Fall of Poland. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany.